Hey everyone, welcome to the House Church Podcast. This is Pastor Jamie here. I'm so glad you decided to join us for today's broadcast. Every time we come together as a church, people encounter God. So my prayer is that you too would experience His presence and hear His voice for yourself. Please enjoy today's message. I thank you that the seeds that you plant in our lives impact the people around us if only we will let them grow. Lord, I thank you that you entrust us to be part of what you're doing in the world around us. And Lord, most of all, I just thank you because you love us, because you're so faithful. And so Lord, I pray that wherever people are at this morning, if they're sitting here, if they're watching online, they're listening later. Lord, you know where they're at, and you're with them already in it. So I just ask that there would be a fresh grace, that they would, that their heart would awaken to your presence and your faithfulness in their lives, that you would strengthen them and you would encourage them. Lord, I just ask that you would anoint my words this morning, and that even in spite of what I might say, (laughs) that you would be speaking to people and drawing them close to you. Just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're going to be talking about a couple of my heroes this morning. Um, If you've heard me speak before, I love history. Um, I am a homeschooling mom, so my kids are forced to listen to a lot of history. Um, I'm trying to think if any of them like it. (laughs) I'm sure maybe one or two of them. (laughs) But I will try to condense my enthusiasm for your sake. But I want to encourage you this morning. I'm going to be kind of setting the scene. And I want you to actually imagine what it would be like to be one of these people. Because the amazing thing about history, I remember, you know, I grew up Uh, loving the Bible. I grew up hearing Bible stories. I'm so thankful. But it wasn't really until I started to become an adult that I think I realized the stories were true, that they were real people, that they weren't just these fantastical, like, stories that just entertained me during Sunday school. (laughs) And as I began to understand that these were real people, this amazing thing happened because suddenly they became part of my faith journey. They became part of my community, part of my family of faith, and I got to learn from them, be inspired by them, be challenged by them, be warned by them. (laughs) And I find that I am genuinely looking forward to heavenly days where I get to experience some of my heroes. And I try to watch my words because I know they're real people and I feel like someday I'm gonna be talking to them on the streets of gold and they're gonna be like, remember when you said this about me? And I'll be like, oh, did, did, I, did I say that? Oh, I think you misunderstood, right? <laughs> um, but so Saul is one of those people for me. King Saul is someone that I've had to watch myself around because it's really easy to kind of bag on King Saul. So I'm just going to kind of recap the setting of his life for for those of you that aren't familiar. So Saul is the first king of Israel. 
When Israel comes into the promised land, you know, most of you are familiar with the story of Moses going into Egypt and how he leads the people out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness and eventually Joshua gets to lead them into the promised land. And when they settle in the promised land and they begin to establish a lasting place and homes and cities and that type of life, they don't have a king. And the reason that they don't have a king is because the Lord himself is their king. Now, that's a pretty amazing statement. <laughs> like, it's not just that they didn't get around to having a king. It's that the Lord designed it so that they would not have a king because he was their king. And there were different people who would lead. There were judges that would be raised up and they would help to execute justice over the people and to lead them into battle and, and those types of things. But there was no king. But the time comes when the people wanted a king. So there's a man named Samuel who's a prophet in Israel and he had known the Lord since when he was young. And he is a good, godly man. But as he gets older, he anoints his, or appoints his sons to kind of rule and judge in his place. And the problem is that his sons are not righteous and godly. In fact, they take bribes, and so justice is perverted. And so they are ruling over the people, and the people do not like it because they are not godly. And not only that, but all the people groups around them, all the nations around them have kings. And those kings were responsible for them. They were responsible to go into battle. They were responsible to take care of the land. They, they carried the weight of responsibility for whatever land they were king of. And so the people see this and they see their own situation. And the elders of the land go to Samuel and they say, we want a king. And Samuel is pretty bummed out by this request. He's not happy with them. And he talks to the Lord about it. And the Lord says to Samuel, don't you feel bad? They're not rejecting you, but they're rejecting me. So this is what I want you to do, though. I want you to warn them about the downside of having a king. Tell them how they're going to have to serve the king and they're going to have to, you know, serve the king's agenda. Tell them how they're going to have to pay taxes and their kids are going to have to go and be in service to the projects of the king. Tell them what it will be like to have a king, but ultimately, I'll listen to them and I'll give them a king. So Samuel does... As the Lord says, he warns them, hey, this is what's going to happen if you have a king, like a man that's a king instead of the Lord that's your king. And they listen to it and they go, we want a king. And so he says, okay, the Lord's going to give you a king. And this is where Saul enters the picture. Now, by the way, I just want to make a note, and I'm not going to go into it, but it's so fascinating to me that Samuel's sons were not just they took bribes, they perverted justice, they were not godly men. And yet when the people are asking for a different system of rulership, the Lord says they're rejecting him, not the leaders that are over them. I just think that's something we should think about. <laughs> because when I think about my life, and I think about who's in charge and who has voice. It's so easy for me to look to man's voice as though they're the ones who have power over me. <laughs> when maybe I should be acknowledging that the Lord is actually the one that is over me. Right? <laughs> All right. So I said I wasn't going to talk about that. All right. 
so this is where Saul enters the picture. The people are asking for a king, and Saul is this young man, and he is, um, he's actually searching for missing donkeys. <laughs> so here we have the elders are asking for a king, and Saul's father owns donkeys that are missing, and so he tells Saul, hey, I want you to take a servant, and I want you to go, and I want you to find my missing donkeys, my missing livestock, right? So he sends Saul out along with a servant to find these donkeys, and Saul's out, he's looking for them, he's not finding them, and he's saying to his servant, you know, we should go back, because at this point, my dad's not gonna be worried about the donkeys anymore, he's gonna start to be worried about us, because we haven't come back, we've been taking so long, and so he wants to head back home, but the servant says, hey, there's this man of God, this prophet, who, we can go to first, and maybe he can tell us where the donkeys are. And he's talking about Samuel. So they go to find Samuel, but what they don't know is that Samuel, this prophet, already knew that they were coming, of course. So 1 Samuel chapter 9, starting in verse 15, says this. Now, a day before Saul's coming... The Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be a prince over my people Israel, and he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people, because their cry has come to me. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. All right. So try to imagine for a moment being Saul. Saul's just looking for his dad's donkeys, right? <laughs> like he's just on an errand for his father. And he's going to Samuel at his servant's like, request. Like, hey, he, he could help us with this mission we're on. And he has no idea what he's about to walk into. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine so Saul and his servant are seated at a place of honor at Samuel's table. They stay the night, and the next morning, Samuel has Saul send the servant on ahead of him so that Samuel and Saul can have a private conversation. And I'm going to pick it up in 1 Samuel 10. So again, remember, he's looking for his dad's donkeys. This is what he's doing. And then this is what happens. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and he poured it over Saul's head. He kissed Saul and said, I'm doing this because the Lord has appointed you to be ruler over Israel, his special possession. When you leave me today, you will see two men beside Rachel's tomb on the border of Benjamin. They will tell you that the donkeys have been found and that your father has stopped worrying about them and is now worried about you. He is asking, have you seen my son? And when you get to the Oak of Tabor, you will see three men coming toward you who are on their way to worship God at Bethel. One will be bringing three young goats, another will have three loaves of bread, and the third will be carrying a wineskin full of wine. They will greet you and offer you two, two of the loaves which you are to accept. When you arrive at Gibeah of God, where the garrison of the Philistines is located, you will meet a band of prophets coming down from the place of worship. 
They will be playing a harp, a tambourine, a flute, and a lyre, and they will be prophesying. At that time, the Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them. You will be changed into a different person. After these signs take place, do what must be done, for God is with you. Then go down to Gilgal ahead of me. I will join you there to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. You must wait for seven days until I arrive and give you further instructions. As Saul turned and started to leave, God gave him a new heart. And all Samuel's signs were fulfilled that day. When Saul and his servant arrived, they saw a group of prophets coming toward them. Then the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul, and he too began to prophesy. When those who knew Saul heard about it, they exclaimed, What? Is even Saul a prophet? How did the son of Kish become a prophet? All right. This is quite a plot twist. You know, Saul's just going about his business. He's doing what his dad asked. And all of a sudden, he's being told that he is going to be ruler over Israel in a land that had never had a ruler like that before. You know, I'm guessing most of you didn't grow up in this room dreaming of becoming king or queen of America. Right? If you did, it's not going to happen. I'm sorry. (laughs) But you didn't dream of that because it's not a possibility. It's not something that exists. You're not going to become the divine ruler (laughs) over America. And Saul is in this position where a king doesn't exist, where he doesn't even have it on his radar. And all of a sudden, he's going about his life, and God intersects it and says, hey, this is what's going to happen. And then these amazing things start to take place. And we know that nobody expected something like this from Saul because people hear of it and they're like, what? That was Saul? Saul? Saul was prophesying? Is Saul a prophet now? Like, this was not his expected life course. (laughs) Nobody was thinking this was going to be what would happen, least of all Saul. You know, Saul did have a few things going for him. He was said, Scripture tells us, to be the most handsome man in all of Israel and also the tallest. But there's little else we know about him. Like, people liked what he looked like from the outside. He was tall. He's tall. He must be good in battle. Let's pick him, right? They thought he was a king because of what, or he would be a good king because of what they saw on the outside. And when Samuel first talks to Saul, by the way, Saul says this to him. He says, what are you talking about? I am only from the tribe of Benjamin, the smaller tribe in Israel, and my family is the least important of all the families of that tribe. Why are you talking like this to me? Like, he was not tracking (laughs) with what the prophet was saying to him. And then, (laughs) as a further sign that maybe he's not ready for this role, when the time comes to anoint him publicly as king, do you know what happens? They can't find him. All right? So they're doing this thing, and they're going to anoint him publicly. He's, he's already been anointed privately, and now it's time for him to be put into this position publicly. And nobody can find him. And then someone says, um, he was hiding among the baggage. Like, that does not fill you with confidence. But they go find him, and then he is publicly you know, anointed to be the king. 
God chose Saul when he was not expecting it. And when it happened, there was this dramatic encounter with the Lord that came with it. Like how amazing. The spirit of God came powerfully upon him. He was given a new heart. Like that's pretty powerful stuff. It's a pretty great start, you would think, right? All right, we're going to pause for a moment and we're going to look at the next king of Israel. The day comes, years after this, when Samuel is sent by the Lord to anoint the next king of Israel. Now, if you're not familiar with the stories, this is kind of a hint that things maybe don't go well with Saul, because normally when a king does well, it's his children, one of his children that becomes king after him. That's how it's done. And in this case, the Lord's anointing someone entirely different. So that's just a little hint. But anyway, we're moving on to the next king. So the Lord sends Samuel to the town of Bethlehem to anoint the one who would be the next king. And he tells him to go to the house of Jesse because that's where he's gonna find the next king. It's one of Jesse's sons. So Samuel does as instructed, and it says that he sees the oldest son, and he takes one look at him, and he thinks, surely it's this one. Oh, surely this is the next king. And this is what the Lord says, 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature. Remember? how Saul was so handsome and he was so tall. Don't look at his appearance. Don't look at how tall he is because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Samuel moves on to the next son and the next one and the next one. And he does this until seven sons have passed before Samuel and not one of them is the next king. And so Samuel looks at Jesse and he says, is this all? Like, do you have any more sons somewhere? And Jesse's like, well, I guess, yes. There's the youngest. He's out with the sheep. And so Samuel says, well, we're not going to sit down until he comes. I think that was a little pressure on the moment, you know, like we're all going to stand here awkwardly waiting until you get this, this son. Which, by the way, the fact that they didn't even consider David important enough to be there kind of tells you where he ranked in the family, right? But so there he is, the youngest son. He's out in the field tending to the sheep. Nobody had even gotten to him, but he comes in. And in 1 Samuel 16, 12, it says, So he sent and brought him in, speaking about David. Now, he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So he left. All right, we're not going to go into David's family history, but there are reasons that nobody thought to get David. He wasn't that important in his own family. So they're not going to think that he's going to be the one who's going to be important outside of it either, right? (laughs) David is not a likely successor to the throne. Now, do you see the two similarities between their stories? You know, Saul's looking for his father's donkeys, and David is out tending to the family's sheep. Both were going about their business, just minding their own business, living their lives, and suddenly 
a divine destiny intersects with them and changes everything. <laughs> Neither one of them could have guessed or foreseen what was about to happen. However, there is an indicator that there was a difference between them. You know, in, when the Lord's talking to Samuel about David, he says, hey, outward appearance and height don't matter. I don't look at the outside. I look at the inside. You know, God's saying David has something inside of him that is the reason why I am choosing him. There's something you don't see about this kid. There is something in him that I know is there, and it is what qualifies him to be my choice for this position. Now, one last thing to note is that when David and Saul are anointed, the Spirit of the Lord comes powerfully upon both of them. But only one of them does it say anything about their heart. Saul, it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he's given a new heart. It doesn't say anything about David's heart. And do you know why I think that is? I think it's because David didn't need a new heart. Because <laughs> his heart had already started to be prepared. Now, if you know their stories, you know that the story of David and Saul end quite differently. But it isn't because one is good and one is bad. <laughs> they both make a lot of mistakes. But they both end up in much different places. Saul's story ends with Israel being ripped from his hands and given to another. <laughs> he was willing to sacrifice to the Lord, but Saul, in the end, was not willing to actually be obedient to the Lord. He cared more about the opinion of man than the opinion of God. <laughs> David, however, David's story is different. You know, Scripture has this devastating sentence where it says, in fact, it repeats it more than once, it says that the Lord regretted making Saul king. I regret that I have chosen him. I regret that he has been made king. But David, as messy as his life is, as problematic as some of his choices are, his life ends much differently. Even when David's descendants would fail, God would say to them, hey, there's going to be consequences for your choice. You know, you haven't been serving me. You've been, you've been leading Israel astray. And there's going to be consequences to your choice. But for the, sake of my savit, my, for the sake of my servant David, I'm going to not completely destroy you. For the sake of my servant David... And David was the one that God chose. It's his line that Jesus would come from. Scripture says it's David's throne that Jesus sits upon. In Acts 13, 21, it says, uh, He raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified. And he said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought an, to Israel a Savior, Jesus. I have found David, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. David was chosen by God, but so was Saul. So what was the difference in how they ended? It was their hearts. It was a matter of their heart. When I was in kindergarten, I had heart surgery. 
you can see actually, I think, my scar. I have a scar that goes down to my belly button. Um, and a nurse one time when I was doing a medical history, at, you know, when you go to appointments, you have to do that. And I had this new nurse and um, had to give my medical history. And she asked why they had waited so long, because the hole in my heart was fairly large. And she said, well, why did they wait so long to repair it? Like, you were born with it. Why didn't they repair it when you were younger? And I said, well, because they discovered it like a week before my surgery. They just didn't know it existed. And as soon as they discovered it, I was scheduled for surgery that next week. And so I had the surgery. Thankfully, I haven't had any issues. Actually, Doyle was there. He was my pastor, and he came to the hospital and visited me, which was pretty sweet <laughs> all these years later. Um, but when I told her that, she flat out thought I was lying. It was actually really weird. Like, why would I lie about that? <laughs> you know, but she's like, there is no way. There's no way that you live that long without them discovering it. And I said, well, actually, I did. I had even been hospitalized at one point before that because I was sick and I just wasn't getting better. And even then, they didn't discover it. For whatever reason, no one understood what was happening. And my mom brought me to a new doctor who listened to my heart one time and said, what have they done to treat the hole? And she said, what? <laughs> what hole? And he said, well, surely you know that there's a hole. Nope, news to her. So anyway, end of story, I had surgery. Life went on beautifully, been healthy, very thankful for that. But the reason I'm telling this story is because this nurse couldn't believe that I had lived as long as I had and been, you know, active and not more sick and that nobody had discovered it because a hole that size would have such an impact because your heart matters. You know that if your heart, if you're, if you're having heart problems, the rest of your life is going to be affected by it, right? <laughs> if something is wrong with your heart, then... Like, that's something that you want to take seriously and you want to take care of and thank goodness for the Lord who heals us and for doctors and technology that help us with that as well, right? <laughs> so the heart is really important. It's important physically, but it's important, I would say, even more so <laughs> when we're talking about the heart in reference to our inner man. Because life flows from it. It impacts everything you are. You know, before I had heart surgery, there were times I was little, so I don't have a lot of memory of it, but I know that I would get tired quicker than I had to, right? <laughs> Jamie, ironically, he discovered as an adult that he has a heart different thing. Our kids are so lucky. <laughs> they get it from both of us. Yay. <laughs> but, and after he found out, it made sense, some of his experiences, because it was impacting him, and he just didn't realize why right? Because your heart matters. The same is true about your inner man. When you're walking around wounded, when you're walking around with junk in your heart, when your heart isn't correctly aligned, when it's not clean, it's going to actually impact the rest of your life. And you may not be able to identify why you're having some of the effects that you're having, but it starts with your heart. In Proverbs 4, 20 through 23, it says this, 
My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their body. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Now that word, diligence, it is the same word that you would get a prison or jail guard from. It's that type of diligence. You are watching over it with diligence, like you would if you were in charge of the prison, if you're guarding something like that. Watch means to keep with faithfulness. So it's saying faithfully guard your heart like a prison guard watches over his prison, attentively, assertively, continually. Why? Because from it flow the springs of life. You know, some other translations say that it determines the course of your life. That's what the NLT says. The Jewish Bible, the complete Jewish Bible says it's the source of life's consequences. <laughs> Want to know why you have consequences in your life? Well, maybe instead of blaming people like I like to do, you should look at your heart. The voice translation says... From a sincere and pure heart come the good and noble things of life. Do you know who wrote that? <laughs> Solomon, who learned it from his father, David. David was a man after God's own heart. That's what the Lord himself said. And so I'm just going to take a little bit of time. There's a lot of things we could say about why that is the case, but I'm just going to touch on a few of them. And the first thing is that David was authentic. And by this, I mean that his character was the same in private as it was in public. You know, David ends up facing the giant Goliath, and he is successful against him. And he fights Goliath, who is a seasoned warrior, who's a giant, who has all of the Israel army trembling in fear for 30 days. And David faces him and is successful against him. And the reason is because David was already prepared to face Goliath because of how he lived his life when he was out in the fields with his sheep. You know, when he's talking to Saul and saying, hey, I'm going to go and I'm going to fight Goliath. Like, it's fine. You don't have to worry. I'm going to take care of this guy. And Saul's like, you're, you're just a boy. You can't go. And David says, hey, you know, when I'm out with my sheep, if they're threatened by a lion or a bear, I take care of it with my bare hands. Like, I'm good. Like, I know because of that experience that I, I can face Goliath and win too. And when he goes to face Goliath, you know, Saul tries to give him his armor and his weapon, and David puts it on. It doesn't fit. It's clunky. It's too big. It's heavy. And he goes, this isn't going to work, and he takes it off. And so he goes to face the giant with his slingshot, with his shepherd's staff and his shepherd's bag into which he places some river stones. David goes to face Goliath equipped with the th tools that he has already been using. David's the same <laughs> in private as he in is in public. And the reason he wins against the giant is because he hadn't wasted his training. His private time prepared him for his public debut. Do you know that your private time matters? That who you are when nobody's around actually counts a great deal? 
about, it says a lot about who you are and it also communicates what you're ready for. <laughs> you may not realize this, but the opportunity you're waiting for maybe isn't going to come until you start living <laughs> according to the character that it requires. Right? Because the opportunity isn't going to automatically give you the tools or the character that you need to be successful. And it may be God's grace that is preventing that opportunity from coming your way because he wants you to end up like a David, not a Saul. <laughs> right? David was authentic. He was the same in public as he was in private. And that mattered a great deal. Secondly, but of no lesser importance, David was a man whose worship and confidence rested in the Lord always. You know, when he faced Goliath, it wasn't just that he had confidence in himself. You know, he did because he had already passed these private tests. But he also, like, he comes onto the scene. David's only there because he's delivering food to his brothers, by the way. He wasn't there, actually, part of the army. But he comes and he sees Goliath taunting the army. And he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine, this uncircumcised man that comes against the armies of the Lord? And that's just his way of saying, who is this guy who doesn't even know the Lord, doesn't follow him, who's coming against God? Right? Like that's his response. And when he's talking to Saul, he says, hey, the Lord rescued me from the lion and the bear. And I know he's going to rescue me from Goliath too. Because his confidence wasn't just in himself, but it was in the Lord. You know, he was a worshiper. The Psalms are filled with his worship. And the thing that I love about it is that he didn't just worship the Lord when things were good. Like if you are having a great day, there's a Psalm for you. If you are having a day where you literally are like, huh, death wouldn't be that bad, <laughs> right? <laughs> like there's a psalm for you because David worshiped in every single situation. He worshiped when he was victorious. He worshiped when things were going well. And he worshiped when he was like, I am lower than low. <laughs> like death would be a welcome repeat, reprieve from the life that I'm living right now because he was a worshiper. You know, David's tent where the Ark of the Covenant rests during his time on the throne brings the worship of God into the center of life in Israel. Like it breaks the religious rules, but it's okay. It's not even just okay, it's good because it comes from a heart of worship, a heart that's connected to the Lord. Third, David was a man of honor. First and foremost, he had honor towards the Lord, even when he didn't understand. You know, the first time that David brings in or attempts to bring in the Ark of the Covenant, so the Ark of the Covenant is the most holy place. It's where the Lord's presence rested. And during Saul's reign, it had been left, like it had been neglected. And so David wants to bring it back. He wants to bring it into Jerusalem and make it central to life in Israel again. This is good, right? <laughs> and so they go to bring the ark back and they have the ark on a cart. It's being pulled by oxen. You know, there's thousands of people that are worshiping. David's worshiping and they're rejoicing as the ark is coming. And one of the oxen stumbles and the ark starts to fall and a man that's walking by it puts his hand to steady the ark. 
Like he's trying to make it so the ark doesn't fall, right? Like moms, you do this naturally with your children, right? Dads, I'm sure you do this too. But like it's amazing how quick your reflexes can be in moments like that. So this is a good thing, except for you know what? It isn't because nobody was allowed to touch the ark like that. And so this man who reaches out, he dies. The result is he touches the ark and he does not live. And David (laughs) is so upset, right? Like, can you imagine the scene? That would be, that would put a damper on the day, right? So the ark doesn't end up coming into Jerusalem that day. But three months later, they try again. And when David is making the preparations to do it the second time, he doesn't blame the Lord. He says, you know what? We didn't properly prepare. We didn't properly prepare. We were doing this. And so this time, you know what we're going to do? We're going to do it right. And he, you know, they do this elaborate thing that I don't have time to get into. But I just think it's so amazing because, you know, he has this moment And we're going to get into this with the next point too, but he has this moment where there is confusion, there's anger, there's heartbreak, there's frustration, but very quickly David returns back to a position of honor. He honors the Lord. It is so important to honor the Lord because it's so easy to misunderstand and to hold the misunderstanding against the Lord. Like, maybe we won't say it in our words, but there are times when we think, Lord, where were you? Why did it happen that way? Lord, I serve you. I do what you want me to do. What what are you doing, right? And it's so easy to be in that place. But David was a man of honor. He was honoring to the Lord, and he was honoring to man, too. You know, Saul... (laughs) Saul, whom David served, tries to kill him. And on more than one occasion, David has the opportunity to kill Saul. And it would have been justified in the eyes of anybody from the outside looking in. It would have been justified because David had to flee. He's on the run. He's done nothing wrong. And Saul is hunting him. He's hunting him with thousands of men because he wants him dead. And on more than one occasion, he has the opportunity to kill Saul, and he never does. And not only does he never kill him, but he says, who am I that I would raise my hand against the Lord's anointed? And in this one moment, he says, hey, as the Lord lives, you know, if the Lord wants me on the throne, if he wants to take care of Saul, then surely the Lord will strike him. Or the day will come where he will die. Or maybe he'll go into battle and he'll perish. But the Lord forbid that I would do anything. I won't raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. Like, he's just going to trust the Lord for however it plays out. He knows that the Lord, if the Lord has a plan, if it's in the Lord's will, (laughs) that the Lord is capable of working out the details. It doesn't require David to figure out how it's going to happen. You can live in honor towards the Lord and man and trust that the Lord is going to work out the details of your life. You don't have to figure it out any more than David did. (laughs) When Saul dies, 
You know, it wasn't just his outward actions, but when Saul and Jonathan die, David mourns. You know, obviously he mourns for Jonathan, who was his dear friend. But he mourns for Saul, too. He weeps for him. He tells the men who had Saul buried that he is going to show kindness to them because of what they did for Saul in burying him in his death. Like, David had every excuse to be offended and bitter, but he wasn't, and his his actions displayed what was in his heart. All right, and now you have to listen fast because I'm running out of time. But the last thing is that David was a man of humility and repentance. We're not going to go into the details, but David was not a perfect man. We don't have time for the stories, but he did lots of things wrong. You know, there's the big story, adultery, and it's not just adultery. It's him taking like advantage of somebody because of his position of power, right? And then he murders someone. Like, he's not, like, these are pretty big stories, right? But there's other stuff he does too. The Lord tells him not to do a census, and he does. Like, there's, there are missteps. David fails as a parent on more than one occasion. Like, he's not a perfect man, but do you know what he was? <laughs> He was a man who was quick to repent every time he was confronted with a sin. He walked in humility. He walked in repentance. And, and this is key, because of that, he did not separate himself from the Lord when he was confronted with his own failings. It's so easy to run away from God because we're hiding when we see the ugliness of what's going on in our heart. When we make a choice that's based on selfishness, when we have a mess that we don't want to face, it's so easy to run away from the Lord and separate ourselves from him. You know, the Lord's not the one who's separating himself from us, by the way. It's us (laughs) that's running from him. It's so easy to do that. But David would never separate himself from the Lord, at least not for long. Instead, he would humble himself. He would repent And he would accept whatever consequences came his way. And then he would move on with grace and mercy and righteousness. (laughs) Saul and David were both given the opportunity to lead Israel. And when you read their stories, David's is a story that seems harder at first. You know, he's anointed years before he actually reigns. And he has to live on the run from Saul. And there's so much that seems unfair. But it was actually Saul, I think, that had the disadvantage. Because David, (laughs) Saul looked good on the inside. But David, he was, or on the outside, David was prepared on the inside. And those days, those years before he actually got the throne, those were training days that were not wasted. (laughs) Power and opportunity are not great for the formation of your character. (laughs) They tend to display what's already in your heart. (laughs) And so David, I think, was actually the one who was at the advantage here. You know, they both had the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is such an amazing gift. I'm so thankful I get to walk with the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit comforts us, teaches us, corrects us, empowers us, seals us. You know, it could go on and on. Life with the Holy Spirit is night and day different than life without him. I'm so thankful. But I want you to know that even with the Holy Spirit, your heart matters. The condition of your heart matters, and perhaps even more so. Because if the Holy Spirit's empowering you, 
then whatever's inside of you is going to come out. The good, the bad, the beautiful, the ugly. The Holy Spirit is not a substitute for character. There are no shortcuts to growing your character. It comes from protecting your heart. And you protect your heart by choosing well, practicing inner healing tools, staying in connection with the Lord, being obedient to the Lord. And I want you to know that your character is mostly created in secret. The choices you make in your daily life, the way you live in in between seasons, what happens when you get offended, who you are before you're anyone. It's the condition of your heart that's writing your story, even if you might not realize it. All right, can you please stand? All right, I'm just going to pray. It's not going to be a long prayer, but I want to encourage you to participate with it, okay? So if you want to just close your eyes and put a hand on your heart. Lord, I thank you that each person in this room is chosen by you, that you created them and then you chose them and you have gifts for them and you have opportunities for them. And Lord, I thank you that there are no wasted seasons, that every season is an opportunity for preparation for whatever you have for us. So Lord, I pray today that you would reveal the condition of our hearts to us, that you would show us, Lord, are there areas of offense? Lord, has our love and worship for you grown cold? Lord, have we picked up concern about what people think? Are we wasting the opportunities, the little things? Lord, our private life, have we not been taking seriously who we are in those moments? Lord, I ask that you'd reveal to us. And also, Father, I thank you because you are not in the business of condemnation and shame but you reveal to us so that we can step into the light and we can be who you created us to be. So Lord, I just ask that your mercy and your grace would wash over every person right now, that you'd give them courage, Lord, that you'd help them to follow in David's footsteps, that we would be authentic, that we would worship, that we would be full of honor, Lord, and that we would be humble and quick to repent never turning or hiding from you. So just thank you, Father. I thank you for the example of David and for Saul as well. Lord, and the people around us as well, Lord. Help us to be a blessing. Help us to help each other to become who you created us to be. So just thank you, Father. I thank you for this people in this day. And I bless them and just ask that your smile, that your face would be upon them, that your presence would be tangible with them, and that they would go into this week with a fresh joy. So just thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. It's our hope that God touched your life in a truly meaningful way. And if you were impacted, please let us know by writing a review or share it with friends. If you'd like more information on The House Church, we would love to connect you with our community. 
please visit us at iTheHouse.org for more information. We'll see you next week.